This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Steve, I'm one of the elders of God First, uh, and it's uh, great to get a chance to speak with you um, uh, this morning. We're in a three-part series at the moment um, uh, around the suffering of Jesus and the crucifixion, and and today we're looking uh, at the cross as we head into Holy Week, and it's a topic, obviously, we'll hear more of for those of us who are able to make Good Friday service um, at the URC um, on Friday. Um, The cross is the the topic isn't it? I, I think every, every time I preach, I get so into what I believe it is what the Lord is telling me for that time that I always want to say at the start of whatever it is I'm preaching, this is like the one, this is really important, but actually the cross is the topic. So if I say this again next time when I'm preaching something different, you can tell me it's not. Um, it's the topic that if we preached every single week of the year, you couldn't have enough doses of it. I think we cannot overstate the importance of the cross And similarly, we cannot understate the weight of some of the elements that are in this topic, the suffering of Jesus and our sin that put him there. So um, as I preach this morning, I do feel the gravity of those topics and I feel that that Paul thing of I feel that I come before you with fear and trembling rather than words of wisdom as I preach this massive topic. But I also in faith believe that Jesus and him crucified um, is what we need this morning. Um, So we're going to go through uh, Matthew's um, uh, uh, account of, of the cross, uh, the crucifixion, and, and the death of Jesus. Um, and then I'm going to, um, uh, I've got a couple of like mindsets that I want to, uh, or that I've been really challenged in as I've pressed into this topic. And then we're going to talk about the cross and then a tiny bit of application um, at the end um, as well. Uh, it's a long scripture, so again, how lucky are we that I can talk really fast. Uh, Matthew 27, if you want to follow along, we're going from Matthew 27, verse 27 to, I think, I've gone to verse 53, kind of like slightly arbitrarily, um, but this covers the main bits that we're going to be talking about this morning. The, um, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company or battalion of soldiers, that would have been about 500 or 600 men, around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. And as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross before coming to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, which would have acted as a painkiller if he'd chosen to take it. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads 
and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved himself. So he saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, even the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all, all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah does come to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw this, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Jesus, surely you are the son of God. And surely you have a message for us today and every day about the power of your gospel, the power of what you did in the cross. And today we want to come afresh and know you and you crucified and know the transformative effect that that has on our lives for the glory of your name. So give us soft hearts to hear and open ears to listen, we pray. Amen. So um, two things that have really challenged me as I've pressed into this topic and I just kind of like want us to almost like sit with as we go through is it just gives you a reference for what I've been thinking about. Um, one is the centrality of the cross. Okay, so I'm going to, I'll mention these now and I don't know how much sense I'll make but I'll talk about them throughout. The centrality of the cross, the importance, the singular most important event of humankind is the cross. John Stott, in his book on the cross, sums it up as Jesus' 33 years worth of ministry was accomplished in the last 24 hours, or specifically those last six hours. His, whole, his ministry on earth to us was revealed to us in the cross. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, their only reference to Jesus' life it was about his crucifixion. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And the theologian P.T. Forsyth said, Christ is to us just what his cross is. Okay, so his cross is absolutely crucial to, to us understanding Jesus and relating to him. And if you read the New Testament, it's probably the most I've ever read scripture specifically for a preach. If you read like the epistles, ends to end, like 1 Corinthians all the way through, Romans all the way through, and Hebrews all the way through, the centrality of the cross, you know, the epistles, the New Testament writing were aimed basically at us. They, they are, you know, we've got the Gospels, we've got the Old Testament scriptures which are fulfilled and they've got wisdom in them. But the New Testament letters are, are to the churches, which is us, right? They are the template to which we're leaning into. And no matter what situation the church was in, the centrality of the cross is there through and through. Now, I think, uh, God first, I think, I think we're actually a pretty cross-centered church. And I think that's in large part Howard's preaching is so cross-centered. But... Um, I think when I, when I read the scriptures, I recognize that they are far more cross-centered than my life is and that my life displays. And actually, the degree to which the cross is mentioned, is, it's almost bizarrely so. Once you, once you realize it, you spot it throughout. Not just references to his resurrection, not just references to his death, but the fact that he died on the cross is, is absolutely throughout it. And um, this leads me to the second 
kind of like mindset that I just want us to be thinking about as we, as we look at the cross again. And that is, on the face of it, the message of the cross is foolishness. Okay? These aren't my words. This is the word of the Bible. This isn't something that I've come up with. I've read others to help it, but it's in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the message of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And I will mention that in a second, but it's foolishness as well. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, he says, which is to say, yes, he has. He has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Look at how foolish he has made it. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, which is to say the cross, to save. And he says that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So he says to those being saved, which is, you know, if you call yourself a Christian, if you, if you know in your hearts and declare with your mouths that he is your saviour, it is the power of God. But what's interesting is he says, to, he says it's foolishness. He says to Jews it's a stumbling block and to Gentiles it's foolishness. And Gentiles are just non-Jews, so that's shorthand for everyone. So we are still within that category of everyone. <clears throat> it is an absurdity of a message. And what do I, what do I mean by foolish? I think, that will, I think this will become more apparent as we go through the actual scripture itself. But I, I, what I, I, would put, I am a, a Gentile in that, in that language. I, in terms of the where's my challenge with the cross, is it a stumbling block, which is to say that they were looking for a different Messiah, they were looking for signs, or is it a foolish message? I'm in that category. That's where I struggle. I love, I love wisdom. You know, and I think, most, I think that's probably going to be where we sit, like within Cheltenham. I, James tells us, ask if you don't have wisdom and believe and he'll give it to you, and I do that. But the reality is I, I love wisdom. Like I read, I just think, you know, I, I really press into it. And there's a degree to which wisdom is, like an, is an idol for me. And I think in Cheltenham that's probably well, more where we're sat. And I think why this is helpful to remember is because that means that we are going to have unconscious bias when it comes to receiving the cross and the message of the cross, which is itself foolishness. Okay, so I think it's quite helpful to hold on to that. So... We'll come back to that. He did it through foolishness. You know, he said, it's not that God said, I'll hear all the wisdom of the world, these great arguments, and he's like, here's my ace. It's the best argument ever. And they're looking at it and thinking, oh, that is, that is the best argument ever. You know, if, I'd, if I'd been able to think of that argument myself. But no, it transcends arguments. It's not without, it's not without interpretation in Scripture. Scripture does interpret it, and we'll talk about that later. But I think it's, it's worth us holding on to this. But the good news is, we don't necessarily need, we don't need like a theology degree to receive this and to know this and to have it impact our life. Paul goes on to say, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power by my words of wisdom. So that's challenging as a preacher who loves wisdom to come and preach on this message and consider the fact that if I try too hard to be wise that I actually can rob the cross of its power in the message. It's not to say that I make the cross defunct, I've defeated the cross. It's to say that I'm limiting that power as we talk about it now. So fortunately, I don't really feel like I do have words of particular wisdom here today. Um, but it's a good news that uh, uh, we don't need it. So to, those, these are my two, that's, uh, that feels like quite a lot of preamble, but I'm going to talk about that all the way throughout. So two, two things there. One, if we're not making the cross central, we're missing it. That's not the gospel. It's not a facet. Oh, yeah, we should talk about the cross every once in a while as well as the other things that are really relevant to our lives as well. The cross goes all the way through it. And two, the centrality of the cross, the singular importance of the cross and the, and the implication of that for us and for our lives, practically speaking, don't rely on wise words or arguments. One of the things that um, really makes this point about centrality and foolishness that I notice in the New Testament is how, of, how often they mention the crucifixion when it feels like they could just mention maybe resurrection or just death, instead mentioning the cross or crucifixion. They do mention the death and resurrection, of course, but the number of times the cross or crucifixion is specifically mentioned. 
Romans 6 verse 6 is one that really stood out in me. It talks about our old self has been crucified with him. It's not just that old self has been taken away or died. There is something really important about the crucifixion, about the cross. And when I press into this, when I'm thinking, like, why is the cross so throughout 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Romans and Hebrews? Why is the cross so inherent throughout? It struck me that even the fact that I'm asking that question, even the fact that that feels bizarre to me, reveals how sometimes we really struggle to have an understanding of the cross. And then um, two particular things that struck me in our culture particularly about that, um, I think one is we're quite anaesthetised to the significance of the cross. So I think for us, the cross has become you know, an insignia that represents that I'm a Christian or Christianity, so it's a piece of jewellery or a tattoo or like on a book and those things aren't wrong. It does represent those things to us now. But we don't look at it and inherently see that was a form of execution, a hideous form of execution, which our Saviour went through in his suffering as well. So there's this, there's this degree to which we're anaesthetised. And even when we do think about the fact of what it actually did rather than what it represents to us, we don't really have much of a paradigm for death anymore in our cultural society. So I'm probably not the only person in the room who's you know, never seen a dead body. There are other cultures who talk about it a lot who are really close to it. But we don't even teach our kids in our culture. You know, in the, in the three pigs, all pigs survive and the wolf survives. I didn't even realise until like last year that the first two pigs are meant to die. Well, I meant to die, but they did die. It just happened. There we go. So that's my revel. If you take one thing from today, the two pigs don't make it um, as well. And without having this paradigm, without having this man, actually it was, it was, a, crucif- it was a, a mode of execution and, 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 it, and it was hideous and he went through and death as something that we can press into and really understand. We again, we rob ourselves of some of the message and some of the significance of the cross because the reality was it was barbaric. It was absolutely hideous. It actually feels... It actually feels perverse in our focus to talk about, in our, um, in our culture, to talk about it too much. It feels like the kind of thing that we would not normally want to talk about. Oh, someone passed away. How did they pass away? They passed away like this. That's the last time we're going to mention it. How, what a horrible way to go. It might be the most we say. But we don't want to press into the details. We don't want to think about it. And yet the Bible is really forward with it. The Bible does it throughout. The Bible is, is pretty upfront about how hideous this was. And even the bits that it doesn't extrapolate on, at the time they would have had a context to understand it. Verse 26, just before um, the section I started reading, there's like a a two-clause verse here, a three-clause verse, and the middle clause just happens to be a quick reference. He had Jesus flogged, and then he hands him over. Then the NIV starts the story of Jesus' crucifixion as if this is just like a byproduct. By the way, he was flogged. I can double-check that he was like flogged on the way to it. Flogging was was a part of a judicial penalty of the Roman system. The Jews had it as well, but had a limited number of, of, of strikes that they would hit you with. They did 40 less, 1 to 39. The Romans didn't have that rule. And they would have done it with a multi-lashed whip, with bits of bone and bits of metal at the end of the lashes. From the first strike, Jesus' back, the skin would have been ripped away. Ongoing, we're talking about losing muscle, and by the end of it, skeletal muscle would have been taken away as well. It was called, it was called the close death. Like as a, as a method of punishment, it was called close death because the reality is there was a really high chance that someone dies before they even get to the cross. People died from hypovolemic shock, which is where you don't have enough blood to pump around your body to keep all your organs going. The blood wasp would have been, it's not just like we're not talking, oh, sometimes you like die because of a lot of it. His back is open and pouring out blood. There's stuff I read about it that frankly I feel like I don't want to repeat in this setting because it feels so horrible and yet for some reason the Bible makes it central and talks about it again and again. Psalm, I think it's 129, is a prophetic one and says, plowmen have plowed my back and made the furrows long. That's what his back would have looked like. 
It would have been like a plowman taking a plow to his back and making furrows long and deep. We're more familiar with Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, or sometimes the translation, by his wounds. Wounds sounds a little bit like paper cut or something, but stripes is far more descriptive and accurate of what his back would have looked like after this. And the crucifixion itself, of course, was grotesque. It was a slow suffocation, and every breath that he would have taken on the cross would have relied on him, leaning into his arms, where nails had punctured and were rubbing against the nerves into his ankles and doing the same, and bringing his back, which was open, up against the rough woods of the cross until he ran out of energy to continue breathing and died of suffocation. I don't want to... I'm reading it, and I feel like I don't want to embrace it. I don't want to know it. I don't want to know those details. Howard, Howard preached a couple of weeks ago on, on reading Scripture, and we talked about the method of meditating on Scripture. Um, Tara gave me a really good book on that, and that's the way that I love to, to, to prep on that, just... Lean into the word prayerfully, ask God, you know, mull each over each sentence and each word. I didn't enjoy doing that whilst thinking about the crucifixion. The ramifications of it are hideous. And yet, whereas I don't want to embrace it, and where I'd rather just think about his resurrection, and if you really push me, the fact that he had to die first for a resurrection, not the fact that he was crucified for it. Jesus doesn't even take painkillers before he goes on the cross. It's like Jesus is less, wants to be less anesthetized to this horror than I do. And mocking was part of it as well. Verse 27, a whole company or battalion, 500 or 600 men. That wasn't part of a judicial penalty. There wasn't an order, but 600 men have to stand there whilst they mock him. Neither was the the abuse, the the, the crown of thorns which they put together, they decided would be a good idea to put together and force into another man's flesh. That wasn't part of a judicial penalty. Neither was the beating or the spitting, something that was inherent of the penalty of crucifixion. Verse 39, those who passed by hurled insults at him because crucifixion by its very event was meant to be degrading. You are the lowest of the low. In Golgotha, you are scum. You're being executed, but you're actually being executed in the way that we execute the lowest of the low. You must have deserved that. And yet beyond even that, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders have gone out of their way to go and witness a criminal effectively being murdered in the most horrendous way and throw their own abuse. Even the criminals either side of him, we know that one of them repents, throws abuse at him as well. And I think pausing for a second to consider how far outside of our paradigm that is, but how horrendous that is, that death is on display for most of us who might not have even seen death. He's fully exposed, he's fully naked, where normally you'd maybe want to cover that up or run away if you saw that. There is immense gore, it's not a clean death. They're not going to watch like the electric chair or like a hanging or something. He's bleeding, his back is open. Incredible suffering and no one is helping him. It's the kind of thing that if any of us saw even a video of, You'd have post-traumatic stress disorder just from seeing it. It is hideous. And yet the people who were there to witnessing it were mocking him in addition. It was meant to be degrading, shameful. The technique removing common humanity from the victim. And the disciples, who did have a paradigm for death and did have a paradigm for understanding crucifixion, would not have been able to see this as anything other than an irredeemable defeat at the time. For them, this would have absolutely been journey over. I don't, he gave me all the promises. I thought he was a smart messiah. I was expecting him to win a military victory and eventually overthrow the government and to, to be our king once and for all, and he's dead. And it is, it, I don't understand how, but it is dead. And he's not just dead. It's not just like he got hit by something or fell off a cliff or something. He's been crucified. No one expected a crucified messiah. It is as contrary a plot as you could possibly write if you were making up a faith for people to believe in. And yet, 
The New Testament writers repeatedly refer to not just his resurrection, and he did die, and if you, really, if you really need to know why he died or how he died, he died of crucifixion. Again and again and again, they are making references to the cross. It becomes the singular most important event in human history, not just at the time, but going forward. It becomes the epochal victory moment of our faith. Foolishness, madness, not the best argument. And I think it's really helpful sometimes for us to not forget this contradiction, this perceived weakness and this scandal. But the real scandal, of course, is that it should have been us on the cross. He took our place. 1 Peter, the the Gospels tell us the story of the crucifixion and the rest of the New Testament and and looking back at the Old Testament, extrapolate on on, on it for us. 1 Peter says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took upon himself our sin and our shame. The words of the song, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Sin is a separate topic, but I think without understanding it at all, I think it becomes impossible to understand the cross. And it could be a, you know, it could be a whole series, but just a couple of things just to get us on that same page. Fleming, Fleming Rutledge, who Howard's quoted um, previously, wrote an excellent book on the crucifixion, says that sin is a category without meaning except in reference to God. So sin in and of itself isn't a set, it's not like there's a thing called sin and God happens to have an interest in that thing called sin. Sin makes sense within our relation to God. And um, it, the Bible talks about sin in a number of ways, and I think we often get stuck on the first one in terms of application, which kind of robs us both of, it, it kind of makes us underestimate the power of sin in our life and makes us feel guilty, and also robs us of the power of recognizing what he did on the cross. So sin, that, that first one that I think we get stuck on, sin is a verb, okay, so sin is an action or a series of actions or inactions, and I think that's where we tend to go to when we think about sin, like I, I did a sin, or, you know, even singularizing it, sin, I sin, kind of like takes away the horror of the fact that underneath the I sin, I have done specific sins which are nasty and unpleasant and I don't really want to think about. But it is, it is a verb. But sin is also talked of in the Bible, particularly by, by Paul, as a power. And I find that really helpful in knowing freedom from sin. You know, we think of the, this idea of a devil prowling around us, looking for opportunity. Sin it takes this opportunity, it's almost like this external force. Mike, gave me referencing people who give me good books, gave me a great book, which, um, which really spoke about that, which I can't remember the title of now. Um, but it, this idea of like sin, sin is a power looking to, to have mastery over us and looking to, to recommit us to slavery as well. But also sin is a state. Okay, sin is a, a, an accurate description of our state of rebellion from God, our not-rightness with God, are not at oneness, oneness with God, beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden and their will dis- willful disobedience and continuing, continuing through all our acts of willful disobedience, which drive us from him and against him. And sometimes I think it's helpful for us to remember that sin is, sin is not just the list of naughty things that I've done, but is also like a description of that state aside from God, aside of what Jesus did for us. Fleming Rutledge again mentions, from beginning to end, scripture testifies that the predicament of a fallen humanity, which is to say a humanity who is in a state of sin, is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within, which is to say that we cannot fix ourselves or this state of sin, that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. Our state was so bad that he had to come down to earth as fully man and fully God and die on a cross, be for us what we could not be as well, so his righteousness was imparted to us. And it's interesting, in our, in our story in, in, in Matthew, 
uh, in the bit that doesn't, the NIV doesn't see as counting as part of the crucifixion. Pilate um, is putting Jesus, Jesus on trial with Pontius Pilate, and um, Pilate brings these charges against him. He calls it testimonies. I think accusations would probably maybe be a more helpful word for us right here. So the chief priest is saying, Jesus has done all these things. These are the reasons why you should punish him and you should take him to death. And he's bringing these accusations at Jesus. And Jesus is just silent and he's baffled by it. He's like, do you not, do you not feel like you should defend yourself? Do you not realize what happens in a trial? Maybe you've got some comeback on these accusations I'm bringing against you. Do you not hear the accusations that are being brought against you? Well, Jesus, of course, for truth is, did understand and hear those accusations that were brought against him. But what he was doing was preparing himself to receive the accusations that were rightly brought against us and all of humanity for all time and bearing them upon himself. Pilate thought that the most important thing was this mini moment of trial and these accusations coming from a few hundred men that he was specifically aiming at Jesus. But Jesus was playing the cosmic game of bringing testimony against him unfairly and accusation against him. And those accusations are rightly should rightly be aimed at us. I um, often reflect on the injustice of Barabbas being released rather than Jesus. Pilate doesn't find him guilty and says, okay, you can have one prisoner freed, have Barabbas. And it says, you know, it says that, that he was a notorious criminal at the time, which almost makes him sound like a pantomime villain. But actually, he was, he was a murderer. You know, people would have known him in the community. They would have known the people that he'd murdered. They might have known the, the, the people that he murdered and him grow up to be a murderer. Pilate's literally saying, here's the worst person I've got in the stock. Are you still saying that you don't want Jesus released? And they say, no, we want Jesus to be crucified instead. And the injustice of Barabbas going forward in his place. But again, the real injustice is that Jesus goes forward in not just Barabbas's place, but he goes forwards in our place. Verse 46, Jesus feels the weight of these accusations that were brought against the whole world put onto his shoulders and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a reference to the Psalms. Why does he feel that? Why does he feel forsaken? Which is to say, abandoned. Well, it's because in that moment he has taken on the abandonedness, the forsakenness of a world who chose to be forsaken of God and chose to abandon God in willful disobedience. And herein, lies the victory that makes the cross not a topic of horror and one uh, but one in which we do our boasting because in Corinthians we are told that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God our the accusations against us the punishment that should have been ours go on to Jesus and in turn he imputes which means he puts on to us his righteousness and that is how God sees us the Bible says a lot on this I'm not going to say a lot on this One thing I am going to say, though, and this is in reference to this foolishness point I want us to keep thinking about, the cross is of power, not of words. So I think the Bible does interpret itself and does uh, kind of explain it. But it's just, it's really interesting pressing into this topic. There's a book by a couple of guys, Joel Green and Mark Baker, who say that the crucifixion does not easily explain itself and requires interpretation. Crucifixion doesn't easily explain itself, it requires interpretation. It's not like, I think most even non-Christians, if you would understand what the cross represents, that means Christianity. But actually I think a lot of Christians would struggle to explain how and why substitution works and what, you know, what the speci- how, how his wrath was satisfied and how we get upon us our righteousness as well. But it's not just the theologians who say that, it's the Bible that says that. 1 Corinthians again, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. There is an element to which this is foolish. And C.S. Lewis has been quoted as saying that the fact of atonement, atonement being at one moment, that righteousness that, that is part, imparted to us when he dies on the cross for us, the fact of that happening is more important than the how 
of it happening as well. And, and I'm not saying this stuff to get myself out of explaining some of what the Bible or our passage says about it, but it's interesting that the Bible itself reflects this. And then um, when we think about this foolishness, the Gentiles struggling with the message of the foolishness, and, and I think about myself as a Gentile who struggles with foolishness and really wants wisdom, it's because, no, I want a re- what I really want is for cross to be this really logical, easily followable answer. And I think, I, think it is, I think it is explained in the scripture, but actually that's not how God has chosen to do this as well. He's not chosen to make it so that everyone immediately gets saved and can, like, at, at five minutes, ten minutes length, talk about how this worked. That said, clearly, very important, and what the Bible says about that and how that works is, you know, it's, it, it's just plunge into it, plunge into the word and look for it all the way through the New Testament. It is a Trinitarian moment. You know, God the Father isn't sending the Son against his will. God the Father is, is sacrificing his Son, and Jesus, we're told, Jesus goes voluntarily towards this. Like, we're told that his last breath on the cross, he lets out a loud cry, which is contrary to what would normally happen on a cross, right, where you're just about to suffocate because you've got no breath left, and yet here he, out, here he is bringing out a loud cry, Jesus voluntarily goes, not my will, but your will be done. And the Holy Spirit raises him from the dead, isn't it, alive with us, giving life. It's a Trinitarian moment. And actually, it is God, God is fully revealed in the cross. There is no other moment in Scripture where, the re, where God is, the, a revelation of God is so prevalent. We, we tend to have this, this you know, understanding of like the Old Testament God is, is you know, mean and nasty, and the New Testament God is nice. And maybe like the cross was the last moment where the Father became like really unpleasant and then became nice. And all of that's untrue, but actually in the cross we find the full revelation of who God is. Let's not run over it. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss what we find out about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the cross where he reveals love and he reveals that peace that passes all understanding, and he reveals a justice which is redemptive and restorative, often other outside of our own justice, which is punitive or aggressive as well. It is consistent with God's character. And um, having said all that, that I, I guess like a little thing that I wanted to draw out from this scripture about the how, how this happens, how it becomes this massive turnaround moment. And you can pick anything, but verse, verse 51 in our scripture on Matthew we're told that the curtain of the temple is torn on into, and I would love to, I'd love to talk about Passover and other things as well, but I, I just want to, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, which this is, has got real references to as well. The curtain of the temple is torn into at the moment he dies. The curtain was the bit that shut off the Holy of Holies within the temple as well, within which was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of which was the atonement seat, or the mercy seat, and we're told that God resided at those times above it as a cloud, And if anyone saw him, they would die because of their impurity. So only one person was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest. And that was only once a year. And that was only when incense was burning to cover above the atonement seat so they didn't see God and they were killed by their impurity. And the reason that they go into the Holy of Holies is to sprinkle blood from a sacrificed goat without blemish, which obviously we see reflected in Jesus, who's the greater sacrifice. And then he also takes some of the blood and sprinkles on it on the altar as well. And then the high priest would go to a second goat who had been picked by lots, again without blemish, and declared as a scapegoat, who Jesus represents in a greater way, just as he represents in a greater way the sacrificed goat and the sacrificed lambs of the Passover. And the high priest puts his hand on that scapegoat and confesses on it all the sins of Israel before releasing it into the wilderness, into a place called Azaliel. And the people are being told that they are clean before God of all their sin. And I just think there's, you know, in this moment of a high priest confessing all the sins of the people on the scapegoat, there's again just real vibrations of Pilate pointing at Jesus and saying, do you not hear all the accusations that are being brought against you? And um, 
You know, the New Testament expands on the cross beautifully. Hebrews, I've not made this up, it's not that I'm really smart, I'm really not, or read a book about it as much as I want to be a smart Gentile. Hebrews 9 is, again, if you, know, if you want to have like a homework chapter, go and read Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 talks, talks about this explicitly. Jesus mediated for us a new covenant, a greater covenant, but didn't rely on sacrifice and law and on trying to be righteous and on works, but on faith and on grace. And the reason he was able to mediate that for us was because a death occurred that has redeemed us from the sins committed under the first covenant, which is the death of Jesus on the cross to rid us of our sins. He has put away sin forever by the sacrifice of himself. Unlike the Day of Atonement, which still happens even to this, to this day, and needs to happen each year for the people of Israel. No, we are told that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more pure, becoming more holy, which is us. And we now have confidence to enter the holy place through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Romans says that God put forward Jesus as propitiation, which means uh, a sacrifice for atonement, like the, like the goat. Um, but uh, uh, he put Jesus forward as propitiation by his blood received by faith. But this word propitiation is translated elsewhere, even in Hebrews, as mercy seat. There are very clear links about what Jesus is doing here and fulfilling that sacrifice of atonement just as he's fulfilling Passover as well. So that we might become his righteousness and so that we might know life in the spirit. And this is it. This is the good news that turned what seemed a humiliating defeat into a point of honour and victory. And I wish I, could say, I wish I could say more on application, because again, being a Gentile who loves wisdom, what I really want to do is like say something new, or bring something clever, or talk about like how we can do it, and I'm going to talk a little bit about application, but neither do I want to rob the cross of its power, or, or recognise that we actually need to hear more than we consistently hear that message of the cross, and know him and him crucified in it. And if you want it, you know, again, homework, if you want it, go read Romans 6 to 8 or 3 to 8, something like that, or go read, go read 1 Corinthians, I'm going to talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians now, or 2 Corinthians, or Galatians, or any book in the New Testament, and read it end to end, and look for the message of the cross, and the power of the cross releases, and you realise that every verse that you ever quote from the New Testament, and all the power and all the good things that we like quoting because they sound amazing, or because we recognise that they bring us peace beyond understanding, etc., is rooted in the cross and what he did. Let us, let us remember that challenge of, of, of being central, of having the cross centred to us. You know, let us consider more problems that we should be looking for solutions in in the cross. And let us recognise that to Jews it is a stumbling block and to Gentiles it is foolishness. And do not let it be either of those things to us. Do not believe, you know, in, in, in Galatians, and I think again in Corinthians he talks about you need to keep hearing this. Because if you don't keep hearing it, you're going to forget it. And we, we, don't, we can't believe that we are beyond that. We can't believe that we don't keep forgetting it or these unconscious biases of it being a stumbling block, which is to say, oh, I want a sign. God, if you give me a sign, I'm really stuck at the moment. There's this thing in my life and I'd like you to change it. And after that, you know, I, I feel like we can go forward. All the foolishness. You know, 1 Corinthians specifically says, if you think you are wise in this age, Steve Moat, become foolish don't rely on understanding, needing an answer to everything, your own intellect or anyone else's. These things are important, but I am not stressed about saying that because I'm pretty comfortable about at least which side I sit on of these things. So remember that it's foolishness, remember it's the stumbling block and that it transcends that. And then just, just to say, I guess, on our first step of application, what I, would have loved to do, what I would have loved to do is almost like put up a menu and say, like, here are some examples of, like, if you're feeling this in your life, here is a way that the cross 
can bring you freedom, but I want to trust in the power of the cross alone, and it would have been, it would have been too much, and it would have been, I think, it, I think you can get into the, the risk of being insensitive and, and, and try it with it. But we do, I do want to recognize the power of God for our lives, because 1 Corinthians, again, says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but one of power. Okay, we should expect to see our lives changed, our circumstances changed. He is not a distant, unwilling, or incapable saviour. He's not incapable of bringing change to circumstances or, or hearts. The work of Jesus shows that God is in the business of coming down and intervening and redeeming as well. And 2 Corinthians tells us that the sting of death, which is sin, now has no dominion. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the band are coming back on stage. We will still face troubles in this life. I, I, you know, I think it's hard to read about the suffering of Jesus and consider, it's really challenging in the West to read about the suffering of Jesus and can, can think, as a disciple of Jesus, can I expect that if I'm all out following Jesus that my life is going to be super easy and just look like someone else's life in the West? And again, you know, the Bible shows us beyond that, it says that we share in his suffering just as we say, share in his comfort as well. But I am confident in saying that the cross is enough. And again, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to be trite. I wouldn't want to say if like someone, people have got real suffering in this church and, you know, man, flipping out, you read, you read what's happening in Ukraine. I almost feel like I have to stop reading what's happening in Ukraine. But I, to, to people who are in suffering, I, I don't think the message is kind of like, again, like a trite, kind of like, oh, if you find someone who's got like a problem going on in life at the moment, just say to them, him and him crucified, you know, it might never happen. But I, I, I also don't want to undersell the power of the cross or rid of it as power. And I think too often I'm worried about coming across as trite or coming across as saying something unhelpful by just saying, have we thought about going to the cross with this? Rather than believing that actually in going to the cross, we see his power activated in our life. And the reason I'm confident in saying that is because we look at what the cross has done. An example of horror, of defeat, so irreversible, but that came a victory to boast in. Our state of forsakenness and irredeemable rebellion is once and for all redeemed by him and him crucified. And wherever you are today, if you are in a place of suffering, Jesus is the one who suffered for us and continues to suffer with us. If you're a place of victory this morning, he is the one who gives victory for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are in a place of indifference this morning, become foolish to know his life-changing gospel. But wherever we are, let us make our starting point in our prayer his ending point when he says it is finished. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.